0: Thank you guys for leading worship this morning. I realize I failed to introduce myself from the stage once I watched Garrison and Micah introduce themselves. My name is Clay. Uh, I am uh, the pastor here at Christ Fellowship. Um, and so again, welcome, and, and we are very excited uh, for this gathering this morning as we prepare to, to go into our time of, uh, of teaching and preaching You can turn to Psalm 24. Um, Prior to uh, this point, we were working through the Gospel of John and what felt like a a very, very, very long time in chapters 7 and 8. And so this morning, as as we kind of do this corporate gathering, it's always difficult to just pick a one-off. Right, I know Micah and Garrison can attest to that, just picking a one-off sermon is always way more challenging than picking just the next text in John. Right, The next text in John tells you what to preach, and it makes life for the preacher somewhat easier most of the time. But this morning was not the case, and so I've spent some time kind of praying and, and, and pondering and thinking what to go into this morning. And so uh psalm 24 seemed right over the past eight months many of you might not know the story of this body and what it's been in the last 10 years but over the last eight months has been an incredibly challenging time spiritually emotionally um, socially it's been hard and as life becomes hard, I don't know about you guys, but as life becomes hard, I find myself drawn to the Psalms. As as we read what the psalmists have to say, as they are in the midst of some of the strongest emotions they feel. And I find myself constantly drawn to the Psalms. And so, as I prepared for this morning, I said, Hey, why not? Let's just jump into something that I've kind of been pondering and thinking through in my own devotional life. So Psalm 24 is where we're going to be at this morning. And I pray this morning the same thing for you all as it's been for me. That as we navigate and we ponder and we think through the question up there is, Who is this King of Glory? We will find some comfort. We will find some hope. We will find some rest we will find a reason to worship. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy Place. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your hands, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. That's good news. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. Let's pray. Father, you are merciful and you are mighty and you are glorious and you are worshipful and you are sovereign and providential and you are God. And you are God. So, Lord, this morning, as we come to your word, feed us your sheep. Feed us by your word so that we may grow into your son's image. By your spirit to look more and more like him. May your word go forth. May your word be faithful and true. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. Okay, Psalm 24. A psalm of kingship. A psalm of kingship. We just finished celebrating 4th of July, right? Just passed a few days ago. Firecrackers, fireworks, dogs whimpering, children maybe a little scared. And here we are in a psalm of kingship. Consider our, our cultural context. United States of America, 1776, right? The purpose of that year and what followed in the Revolutionary War was to what? To remove ourselves from kingship. To remove ourselves from the authority of a sovereign somewhere else. And we just finished celebrating that and it's something in our cultural heritage as Americans that we are proud of and we celebrate and we put up on Twitter enjoy your day at work America or Great Britain right it's something we celebrate and we're proud of and, and rightfully so not wrongfully so we think of some of those wild images that you might see on social media of George Washington riding a bald eagle shooting fireworks and carrying a firearm you think of you see those images celebrating What is our freedom from a sovereign? It's part of who we are, and I think it's very difficult for us to remove ourselves from that context. And for those who have been overseas working in missions and and doing long-term things in different cultures and societies, I'm sure you can attest to the different opinion on these matters in different places. Kingship makes us bristle. Makes us uncomfortable. Authority makes us very uncomfortable. Makes us very uncomfortable. Even even to the point of rebellion. To the point of pushing back. Rightfully or wrongly. Authority makes us uncomfortable. And so... We come to a text like Psalm 24 or really all of Scripture and somehow we in our context need to figure out what it is when the Lord or when the Scripture says that Jesus is king. Or when we read Psalm 24 and it speaks of the kingship of our God. We have to remove ourselves from this bristling towards authority, towards kingship, right? Because the thread of of the kingdom and the the thread of kingship runs from Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to end. This thread of kingdom and kingship underlines all of Scripture. As, As one commentator says, make no mistake, make no mistake, God's kingdom isn't just one of many themes running throughout the Bible. It's not just one of many. It lies beneath the surface and connects everything written in the Bible. From the kingship in the garden, do not eat, to Revelation, when the Lord Jesus returns and ushers in the new Jerusalem and he is seated at his throne and there is no more need for a son because the son is the son, he's king. This idea of kingdom and kingship runs from beginning to end. It connects everything. It's the pattern of scripture. And so, our psalm this morning, Psalm 24, a little bit of context. It was often used in in ancient Israel Jewish traditions for, for celebration. Now, it's unclear what the celebration was. Right? We don't know if it was a return from battle as the ark was, think of First Samuel, as the ark is brought out to fight against the Philistines, almost like the Jews were trying to manipulate the Lord and bringing the ark with them for certain victory and then it's stolen from them. Remember that? We don't know if, it's from, if this was a psalm of that celebration, although it's a psalm of David, so probably not that one. But recall also the time in which Jerusalem was being built. And then David stands and walks before the ark dancing. Becoming undignified, remember? And his wife is embarrassed. And he says, I shall become even more undignified than this. And then David Crowder wrote that song. It's unclear what the exact purpose of Psalm 24 was for. But it is very clear that it was used as a celebration of the Lord as king of Yahweh as king. Ancient Near Eastern cultures in the past, they would have different gods that they worshipped on different days. Monday had a god, Tuesday had a god, Wednesday had a god, so on and so forth. And as the Jews established themselves in the midst of these cultures, that would have been ooh, heinous for them to do. So day after day after day after day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they worshipped Yahweh as king, as God. And this was one of those seven psalms that were read in celebration of Yahweh as king. So, what's the original usage? Hard to say. But it is very clear that it was a triumphal entry. It was a triumphal entry of a king into his kingdom. It's a type. It's a shadow of Jesus entering into his kingdom with a triumphal entry. So our summary this morning, sermon summary, if you fall asleep, if you ignore me the rest of the time, here is the point. Who is this king of glory? He is, the king of glory is this. He is the king of creation. He is the king of salvation. He is the king of victory. Who is this king of glory? He is the king of glory or he is the king of creation? He is the king of salvation. He is the king of victory. And his kingship is all encompassing and it envelops all of life. As one professor once said, Wisdom is living life in light of the reality that God is king. That is true wisdom. Living light in light of the fact that God is who he is. That he is king. So point one. Point one. The kingship, and therefore the authority of the Lord, is intrinsically rooted in who he is as creator. The kingship, and therefore the authority of the Lord, is intrinsically rooted in who he is as creator. Verses 1 and 2. Look there. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon... I lost my spot. And upon the rivers. The kingship, the authority of God is intrinsically rooted in who He is. Think of Genesis 1, think of Genesis 2, think of John 1, and these passages that reveal to us the ex nihilo, out of nothing creation that our God pours forth. What do those things indicate to us? That once upon a time, one day, at some point, in eternity past, there was, there was nothing, with the out, with, or nothing but the exception of the triune community. Father, Son, and Spirit communing together was all that ever existed at one point. And it is out of this triune community, out of the relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit, out of this community pours forth, out of God's goodness and graciousness, a creation. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. He spoke into creation. He didn't gather the materials first and then build. He spoke, and there was. He wasn't bound to do this creation. This wasn't something he was required to do by his own, uh, by some other power. This was something he was free to do. As Louis berkhoff says, that, that free act of God, creation, that free act of God, whereof he, according to his sovereign will and for his own glory, in the beginning brought forth the whole visible and invisible universe without the use of preexistent material and thus gave it an existence. And that existence is distinct from his own, yet always dependent upon him. One of my favorite authors is J.R.R. Tolkien, and I am a an obs- obsessed with Lord of the Rings and 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 Tolkien's works and. One of his lesser-known writings, the Silmarillion, is kind of like a, a precursor to what happens in the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, if you're familiar. And in the beginning of this precursor, Tolkien kind of makes a depiction of creation. Now, it's going to be slightly different from what we see in Genesis, but we see in Tolkien's writing a song. And it is out of this song that Tolkien's creation, his world is brought forth into existence. And it's a beautiful depiction as we think of what God does speaking. Let there be light, and there was light. Out of just a voice, out of God's nature and character and his work comes creation. Think of what Micah just read in Job as Job's life has become an utter calamity because of God's sovereign will allowing Satan to wreak havoc. Job's friends step in and give him advice and <coughs> push back against him because of maybe some flaw of Job's. And then Job kind of starts to give in. Well, maybe the, uh, I don't know, Job starts to question and then and then the Lord steps in. Well, first Elihu steps in and kind of rebukes them and then the Lord steps in. And then we have Job 38 and this gives us a beautiful depiction of what we're talking about here God is the king of creation Job questions and then God says Job dress for action like a man and those of you who have been in this body know you've heard me say that that is the most terrifying thing you can ever hear God saying, "Job, dress for action like a man because now I'm going to question you." And then God asks these questions. Who puts the mountain goat up on the mountain top where he can stand and eat? Who keeps the snow in the storehouses of heaven? Who puts the earth on its plumb line and holds it in existence? Who puts the wisdom into the minds of men? you imagine the Lord asking you those questions? (laughs) Dress for action like a man because I'm going to question you. And then here are these questions and the only answer to those questions are God, you know. Who is this king of creation? Who is this king of glory? It is this one who gathers the storehouses of snow and keeps them wherever he keeps them. It is the one who lays earth out on the plumb line and balances and keeps it up. It is the one who puts the mountain goats up on the mountains and feeds the the mother lions. The God of creation is the one who puts wisdom into your brain and into my brain. And it illuminates his word for us to know and understand and hold fast. This is the God of creation. You see, you see, the earth is the Lord's. Do not miss the apostrophe S on the word Lord's. It is Yahweh's. It is His. It is, possessive, it is the possessive of the apostrophe S. It is the Lord's. All of it. The earth is the Lord's. The fullness thereof. Everything in it. Everything is the Lord's. There is nothing from this creation that does not belong to Him. The world and those who dwell therein. So not just the mountains and the Ohio River and and the roads and the grass but us who dwell therein we are the Lord's why? verse 2 tells us because he has founded it because he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers so why why? Are we the Lord's? Why is creation our God's? Because he founded it. Because he created it. Don't miss the possessive apostrophe on the word Lord's. The Yahweh. It is his. Just as an artist creates and then possesses that which he made so the Lord creates and possesses that which he made. It is his. And because of what he has made, because it is his, because it flows out of who he is, it possesses an intrinsic worth and an intrinsic value. Stewardship. Stewardship of the world. Stewardship of creation. It has an intrinsic value because it came out of our God. Because it was made by Him. Sanctity of life. Humanity. Image bearing. Possessing qualities that God has given to us out of Himself. There is value in you and I and the baby and the criminal in jail and the one on death row. There is... There is, there is matter and 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 importance and significance to those lives because they flow and possess qualities that the Lord has given to them. The value of creation, the value of humanity, often very antithetical to what we live in now, use and abuse, abort and kill, But as citizens of this kingdom, and as citizens of this king of glory who is king of creation, we must recognize the intrinsic value of humanity and creation. Because they flow out of our creator God. Our creator king. Now, let me be very clear. Creation is not God. And we do not worship creation, and we do not worship man and the things he's made. Romans 1 and 2 is very clear of that, that that's a problem. When we begin to worship the creation, we fall into idolatry. We don't worship the creation, we worship the creator of creation, for it reflects he is its glory. Psalm 115 Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. This is going to be important as our next point. Their idols are silver, and gold, the work of human hands, they have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they make a so- They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. You see the danger of worshiping the creation. So do all who trust in these false gods. O oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You see the danger of falling into worshiping the creation. However, just remember there is value. There is value and worth. But it is our God who gets the worship because of who he is. And leading into point two, we must see the dominion and sovereignty that the Lord possesses because of his creating act. As the king, he rules, he reigns, he gives his decree from before time began. And it is from this decree that his sovereign hand works. And it is from this sovereign hand that he providentially orchestrates every minute second of every piece of time that has ever happened and will ever happen. Point two. As king of his kingdom and the king of salvation, God maintains the merits and standards required of his citizens. As king of his kingdom and the king of salvation, God maintains the merits and standards required of his citizens. Verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Good questions. Those are good questions. Questions Job needs to answer. We all need to answer. Who will stand in the presence of God? Who will be citizens in his holy place? Questions we all must deal with and answer. And verse 4, David says... The answer is, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. These two-pronged questions, this two-pronged question of the psalmist, of David. Who will ascend the hill of the Lord? Who will stand in his presence the hill of the Lord, right? Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the city of God, the Old Testament dwelling place of the Lord, as the covenant people of Israel, as they traversed out of slavery 40 years, acquiring the Holy Land, settling in Jerusalem, David taking from Saul the kingship that God has rightfully given to him the ark of the covenant going into jerusalem the presence of the lord in the ark of the covenant god with his people so you see the question is asking is who will ascend into this kingdom who will go into this city of god where he dwells where the ark of the covenant lies and then he he the second part is who shall be in his holy place the temple, the tabernacle that Solomon built, the, to, uh, the, the temple that Solomon built, the holy place, the holy of holies, the most inner chamber where that ark was kept, where the high priest entered in, what, once a year to make atonement for his people, to make atonement for Israel. He had to first make atonement for himself. He couldn't go into that holy of holies with being, by being dirty and unclean. That was certain death. He had to make make atonement, spreading, shedding the blood of goats and, and cows and birds so he could be cleansed. And then to go into the holy place and make the atonement for the people outside. Who can dwell inside that holy of holies? Who can be in the presence of God? That's the question David is asking. You see, I read, I read some commentators on this and they try they to tell me that, or not tell me, but they try and tell whoever's reading that this isn't a, a demand of perfection, of sinless perfection. But you read those verses, you read the answers, and you read the rest of scripture, to be in the presence of God requires sinless perfection. As the Lord addresses Isaiah... His lips must be cleaned before he can answer, before he can go. He must be purified. The high priests must be purified before they go into the presence. As people see the Lord passing, Elisha and Moses, Eli- Moses wears a veil over his face. He can't be in his presence. Elijah has to turn his back. He can't be in his presence. Entering into the presence of the Lord requires sinless perfection. Wasn't that the command given to Adam. Do not eat. Do not. And we know the rest. This is, this is the bad news. This is the bad news. Because to enter into the presence of the Lord requires sinless perfection. The stipulations have been in place from the beginning. As God interacts with his humanity through the covenants, the first covenant, as I've said already, the covenant in the garden with Adam, do not eat, for when you do, you shall surely die. Obedience to the command. Noah, the Lord destroyed the earth because of what? Sin. Humanity ravaged by the plague of sin. But then the Lord in His kindness and graciousness makes a covenant of the rainbow so that we are knowing, we know when we see the rainbow that He will no longer wipe out the face of the earth because He's got a Savior coming. Think of Abraham and the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And it is from this covenant and this lineage of Abraham, His sons, that the Messiah, the Savior comes. Think of Moses, that covenant head, who was given the covenant of works on two slabs and ten rules. Given the law of Deuteronomy, Leviticus. The moral law, you see, has been written from the very beginning. It didn't just pop up when Moses did. It didn't just pop up when, as we read Hebrews 12. As, or, yeah, Hebrews 12, as Moses ascended the mountain, he received those tablets. That wasn't just the start of the moral law at that point. The moral law was started in the garden when God said, do not. And we read Romans 2, and Romans 2 tells us, right, that, that what is written on our heart? The law of the Lord is written on our heart in the form of our conscience. We know right and wrong. It's written in us. There's no escaping that moral law. And we are all guilty of breaking that moral law. Therefore, none of us are sinless. We come to, as I said, the covenant of works, and Moses has given these stipulations, and the Lord gives Moses exactly what will happen should you obey. Deuteronomy 28. He also says exactly what will happen if you disobey the second half of Deuteronomy 28. Calamity. Calamity. And this calamity does ensue. The Lord keeps his promise. But there's a point. David ascends his throne. 2 Samuel 7. There is another covenant made that out from this throne of David will come the eternal king. This King of glory. Our Savior. Christ the Lord. And you see, now we come to the good news. But before we get there, one more time. This is Romans 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. You see, as the psalmist asks this two-pronged question of who will ascend the hill of the Lord, and who will enter into my holy place, who can be in my presence... Those with clean hands. Those whose hands have never committed an act of wickedness. Whose hands have never committed an act of sin. Those with a pure heart. You might not have ever done anything wicked with your hands, but I know we are all guilty of the pure heart. Those whose hearts are stained, tarnished by those temptations and longings that we sometimes have. Who else will enter into the holy place? Those who do not lift up their soul to what is false. Who do not worship idols. Who do not worship money or career or fame or fortune or whatever it is that you most desire. Who shall enter into his holy place? Those whose lips are pure. They do not swear deceitfully. They are not liars. Their lips are clean. It's bad news. Because that's none of us. That's none of us. None of us can reside in the holy place. None of us can reside in his presence on our own. But you see, the pattern of Scripture also shows that from this covenant of works, as I've said with 2 Samuel, comes a covenant of grace. So we read Romans 3. Let's also look at Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin, you see there's no exceptions, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Ah, but these verses. But the free gift. You see, the the free gift is not like the trespass. You see, the perfect life exchanged for the grisly, ugly sinner. What was expectant of Adam, fulfilled in the second Adam in Christ, laid out for those who give themselves to him. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounds all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the great exchange that happens is the good news. You see, there is one man who can answer the question of who will reside in my holy place, who will ascend the holy hill, the one man who can say of himself that he has clean lips, his soul has not been lifted up to another, his hands have never committed violence, he does not swear deceitfully, there is one person who can answer affirmatively to all of those things. And it is the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, who broke into creation for the sake of redeeming his people. And repair what was broken in Adam. And it is by that shed blood. It is by the repentance of us. And the recognition of him. That that shed blood covers us. So we too may in Christ. Be in the presence of our King. You see, the good news is that there is reconciliation where there was none before. All were guilty, but in one. As this one came and died, the death, we should be dying. Buried. Rose again three days later and then ascended back to his throne. It is in this life, death, and resurrection of the perfect, sinless God-man, Savior Jesus Christ, that we find reconciliation. So we too may say we can be part of that kingdom. And it is only by this propitiation, this substitutionary atonement, that we can be citizens in this kingdom. There is no other way to be citizens of the kingdom. And as believers, as those who have forsaken their sin, turned their backs, and turned towards our Savior, what do we have? We have citizenship. We have adoption. We have an ambassadorship. You see, not just citizens, but ambassadors You see, emissaries, those who are called to not just partake and huddle and hide because, well, we're not quite necessarily in the actual kingdom yet. We're in the already but not yet. We have an ambassadorship. We have an emissary's job to do to go out and to proclaim this great exchange of 2 Corinthians 5. Through this repentance and this reconciliation, we, we find an enablement to live out the work of the Spirit. So that way those qualifications of verse 4, we are more better able to live out those things. Because the Spirit now, as Ephesians 1 tells us, as we repent and turn to Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us. The the, the Ark, right? The Ark of the Covenant where God's presence was as Christ died on the cross, that, that, that veil did what? It ripped. And the presence of God then what? By His Spirit entered into those who follow Christ. And now by His Spirit we are enabled to better live out those qualities of verse 4. Though imperfectly, And we can't claim those qualities as our own, as our reason for salvation. It's still only Christ. But the Spirit enables us to better live out those qualities of verse 4. I'm going to speed up. And now, with this citizenship, with this ambassadorship, with this adoption, with us becoming heirs with Christ our Savior, there is blessing. Verses 5 and 6. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Stop and think. This blessing. This blessing for those who are now citizens. It is not your health and your wealth. That is not your blessing, though maybe that does give, come to you. That is not your blessing. You are now saints. You are now saints. That's a blessing. You are no longer strangers. Well, we're strangers in this world. but We are no longer strangers separated from our God. We are sojourners, yes, wandering and waiting for the final, complete, total entrance of the kingdom. We are sojourners waiting and traveling, but we are saints. That is a blessing. We have a hope and a joy because of the merits of our Savior. Our church dissipates in a month's time. Jesus is still Jesus. He is still my Redeemer He is still my anchor and my hope that I hold fast and cling to. Health disappears, it dissipates, it's gone. We are on our last legs. The dying day is what lies ahead. Jesus is still our hope and our anchor and our redeemer. That is a blessing of citizenship. We spend $700 to fix the brakes on one car and then $300 to fix another car and there goes all the savings. Jesus is still the Savior. He is still the Redeemer. So you see this sovereignty, this temporal arrangement that we are living in is completely in his control as the creator God of verses 1 and 2. Even if martyrdom is what lies ahead for those who go overseas, or if martyrdom is what lies ahead in this country in the coming generations, as it was proven around the world, as it was proven in ancient Rome, as it is still proven now, Jesus is Lord. The real prize... And oftentimes I think this is what is missed most. A lot of times, as I was listening to a sermon last Sunday, we are called to focus our eyes on the kingdom. And yes, I agree, but we cannot focus our eyes on the kingdom by forsaking the one who is the king of the kingdom. It's not enough just to put our eyes on the kingdom. It's, we must put our eyes on the king. Because the real prize, the final prize, the eternal prize is in being in the presence of our Savior. That is the final prize, so that we can actually be on the hill of the Lord. We can actually be in the holy place, and we can actually be in the presence of our Savior. You see, that is the final and full prize. The kingdom is good, the kingdom is great, but our final and full prize is the King. In our presence, country music is not the best place to get your theology. I love country music deeply. There's a Brad Paisley song, Dolly Parton song, When I Get Where I'm Going, and here's what what is written in that, but when I get where I'm going, and see, this is the problem with country music. This is like the fourth verse in the song, but it's the most important one. When I get where I'm going, and I see my maker's face, I'll stand forever in the light of his amazing grace. You see, that that is the prize. When I get where I'm going, I will see my maker's face. That is our reward. That is our reward. The only the only the reward only for those who are partakers. Verse 6, the generation of those who seek him. You see, the generation, this term, could mean the assembly, the gathering, the flock of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Only, only those who are within the flock, only those who are within the assembly, and just sitting in these seats does not make you part of the assembly. Only those who are in the assembly, those who have repented of their wretched sin and have turned towards the face of their Savior. Those are those who are part of the assembly and who will one day receive the final and full prize of seeing His face. That is our reward. And lastly, verse point verse 3, How can we be sure? I stood up here and spoke now for 40 minutes, 50 minutes. How can you be sure? How can we be sure? Because as I said in my sermon summary, he is the God of creation. Sovereignly controlling all of it. He is the God of salvation. Lastly, he is the king of victory. He will reign victorious. Make No mistake. Verse 7 verses 7 to 10. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. Why? Because the King of glory is coming in. Who is this King of glory? The answer the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He, he is the King of glory. Selah. As I said earlier, it's hard to know the exact usage of this psalm. Was it something David recorded as uh, something that was passed down as these, the, the Ark of the Covenant was brought in from victorious battle? Was it from David dancing before the Ark as it was returned as Jerusalem, as it, as it came into Jerusalem? It's hard to tell. But here we have a proclamation as the Ark of the Covenant enters into the gates of Mount Zion, the city of God, as the presence of the Lord enters into the city. You see that's what's happening here is the presence of the Lord is entering. He is returning. God is returning to his people. Celebration. Victory. And because the God of victory is returning, lift up your heads. Be encouraged. The Lord of the Rings. The final scenes final portions of the book as the final battle concludes at the black gates the ring is destroyed victory is in hand and Aragorn the rightful king returns to the throne he was yet to be seated on he comes he comes he comes and as I said before a depiction of what was to come because what do we see in the gospels The king of glory, riding in on a donkey to fanfare, to celebration. Lift up your heads, O Jerusalem. Lift up your hands, O Jerusalem, because in comes the king of glory. And what happens a week later? This king of glory is murdered. He's taken, arrested, given a kangaroo court, and murdered. Don't miss the depiction. Don't miss the king of glory entering into the gates of Jerusalem. Now, is these gates that the, 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 the psalmist is writing about, is it literally talking to the gates, talking to the doors? It's unsure. It's unsure. It very well could be speaking of the people within the gates, the people on the gates, the people in the doors. Oh, people, lift up your hands. Lift up your heads because the king of glory is coming but you see what happens as jesus enters in fulfilling the ark of the covenant that that whole piece jesus coming in that was the full and final glorious entrance of the king to complete his mission which was to die and then one day one day it will come he will come The kingdom will be ushered in fully and finally. The new Jerusalem will descend. The Lord will come and clear his kingdom. And all will bow before this king. None shall not bow, forced or unforced. You, we, all will bow before this king as he fully and finally comes. Because he is the king. He's already fulfilled many of the promises of the Old Testament. He said he would. And there is one we are awaiting, and it is this final and full return. For the sake of time, I will not read these now, but go home later and read Colossians 1, 15 to 22. Go home and read Philippians 2, 1 to 11 go home and read Ephesians 2:11 to 22. Go home and read Isaiah 53 because those promises of Isaiah 53 have come to pass and the king has been raised for worship and honor. So this morning lastly, as I've said, if you are part of this kingdom If you have repented of your sins and turned towards the Savior, lift up your heads. Lift up your heads. Because He is the King of glory. The Lord of hosts, strong and mighty. He is ours. If you haven't, if you don't know this King of glory, if you haven't turned from your sins and seen the face of this Savior, And lift up your heads. Because like Moses with the golden serpent that was lifted up in the desert as they were bitten by the snakes and were dying, they had to look up and see the golden snake up on on the cross to be saved from their sudden, certain death. So it is with Christ. Look up and see your Savior on the cross. Because that is your King of glory. He is your King of glory. He is your only hope as the king of salvation. Lift up your heads. Let's pray. Father, you are merciful and mighty. You are the Lord of hosts, strong in battle. You are the God of our salvation, the king of our creation. And you are the king of certain victory. And so let us rest, Lord, in who you are. We pray these things in the mighty name of our Savior, King Jesus. Amen.